Welcome to the podcast, Cutting for Sign. I'm Ron Cecil, men's life coach and writer, together with my co-host, best friend and artist, Daniel Penner-Klein. Throughout our lives and as friends over the past decade, we've asked, how do we find the clues and puzzle pieces that align us with our higher potential? Join us as we converse with experts, artists, adventurers, mental health professionals, and fellow deep thinkers as we cut for sign and attune our own potential, mental health, and creativity. like the sky. Welcome to Cutting for Sign, everybody. Ron Cecil here with my friend, co-host partner, Daniel Penner-Klein. What's up, Ron? Hey, man. Good Friday to you. Good Friday to you, man. Hell yeah. We just, we just, um, we just went over 70 episodes. This yeah. is, this yeah. is, okay. Let's keep man, going. I'm proud of us. Let's keep going here. Today <laughs> we've got uh, Shoshana Berger, um, a designer, an author, an editor, an all around very smart human being, uh, who is tackling, uh, one of the things that she's tackled because she's kind of a, a polymath in some senses. Um, the idea of how to face death mm -hmm. and you and I from the beginning of this podcast have had that as a bit of a thread in some ways mm -hmm. because of our own experience with grief and also with our own experience of our, of our mortality, knowing that we have a number of days that is finite in front of or, us. Or do we? <laughs> Could <laughs> be argued. <laughs> as be I know it's, it's, this is brand new for me, but that uh, Lex Friedman and Ray Kurzweil, is that what his name was? I believe so, yeah. Ray Kurzweil, is his first name's Ray? Um, his last name's Kurzweil, that's for sure. And I mean, it, it kind of blew my mind, you know? I mean, he's basically talking about how AI uh, in, a, in a really positive sense of uh, lens of looking at the possibility, potential of AI could, could extend human life uh indefinitely relatively soon i think you said by uh by 2049 or 45. what appeals to you about that well i i have not avoided the idea of death i have not avoided it um, mentally or in a, on an emotional level uh less and less have i done that in the last 10 years and it's gotten to the point where i have like really felt I mean, really, like in my being, like the awe-inspiring fact that we're going to die, that I'm going to die, and then just the amazing, <laughs> like, sort of thoughts like all my questions are going to be answered, or at least, you know, in some sense of that type of thinking, it's just yeah. like, wow, you're really going to see, you know, what's beyond the veil, you know, and that's going to happen, and who knows if it actually is, for all we know, we're in a simulation, but I think that... um I think that uh, I definitely considered it and deeply and for many, many, well, 10, about 10 years. And so I am not looking or hiding from death or anything. And then I listened to that podcast and just hearing his ideas definitely did open up the possibility uh, that, that death won't happen. And what appeals to me about that, that I'm going to be able to have enough time to do the things I want to do, you know, that I'm going to be able to grow up in ways that I just thought maybe I wouldn't have time to do that. Or, you know, uh, this life would be too short. Uh, the experiences, the love, the mystery, the, the mystery of living 
potentially uh, more than 80 years substantially is heading toward the mystery of dying. And then also, by the way, you can still die, right? Like AI extends our life potentially in his, in his ideas. It extends our life to, uh, it, it, from disease, but not from getting hit by a truck. Right. Right. Which is, you know, according to her co-author BJ Miller, in a beginner's guide to death or a beginner's guide to the end, how to live life to the full and die a good death. Uh, he says, you know, anecdotally, there's no like hard, hard data around it, but anecdotally between 10 and 20% of deaths are kind of in that, like, we don't know, we don't see it coming kind of experience. Mm. Oh, interesting. yeah. Yeah. And it's going down as, as mm. science goes up because there's more safety mechanisms in place. We have better education, all those kinds of things. But it, you know, her their book is is really like how do you plan well to die well, like how do you put in the the simple yeah. things in place, whether it's a will or directives for end of life. Like I like if I go into a coma, for instance, I I would prefer to have the plug pulled, and for a number of reasons. Yeah. And um, but I've only said that, right? And so like their their mm -hmm. book is kind of like have that in writing, have it somewhere or in some other form that people know without a beyond a shadow of a doubt. Cool. It's like a do it, do it yourself, die, die. Yeah, yeah. It is. Die it yourself. <laughs> that's cool, man. I fucking love stuff like that. See, that's yeah, all the time that I've spent, you know, personally, and I don't want to make it sound like I really like have written a thesis on this, but I think more than the average person considered death, you know, and felt it. Yeah. Um, that, that's because I faced it, you know, and, um, man, <clears throat> I, I, I don't see a problem with that. Like, let's do it. Let's get ready. My mom is fucking hilarious. She goes, the last time I was there, she walks me back. She goes, takes me to her closet and she pulls back like this, what, you know, it's a wardrobe moment, the, yeah. the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. She pulls back the closet, the, all the, um, clothes to reveal the back wall and sitting at the bottom of the back wall is this box. And she goes, that's where my ashes go. And I want you to take that and, and dump it into the ocean. It, it's <laughs> sitting in her closet by her shoes. <laughs> she already bought it, man. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. I thought that was cool. Well, cool, man. I can't wait to get kind of nitty gritty with some of this stuff. And Shoshana's here. Let's let her in. Shoshana Berger, you are an author, founder, as well as executive editor at IDEO. Your book on facing mortality, a beginner's guide to the end, which you co-authored with Dr. B.J. Miller, was published by Simon and Schuster in 2019. In support of the book, you also published op-eds and essays in the New York Times, Time, Fast Company, and other publications. You were a senior editor at Wired and co-founder of the DIY design magazine ReadyMade, which was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. In 2006, you turned this into a book, ReadyMade, How to Make Almost Everything. <clears throat> Through your early work in journalism, starting your own business and a lap in the corporate world, you began to develop what has become a Swiss Army knife of experience, including guiding innovation sprints, helping global organizations use the tools of storytelling to generate ideas, shaping the voice of a brand, and even projects that have helped reimagine Judaism, death, and school lunch. And for those of us who didn't know, you also wrote a book about William Butler Yeats living in New York in the year 2029. Shoshana, you believe in leading with a strong story, bringing everything, everyone within a team along for the ride. And the question, how do you tell a human story that also drives a business? Shoshana Berger, welcome to Cutting for Sun. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. You know, a funny note about your uh, William Yates <clears throat> book. When I first read that, I thought you put it at the very end of a bio. And I thought you were saying a joke that in the future, you're going to write a book about William Yates living in New York, not a <laughs> book about William Yates living in New York in the future. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. I was like, and... oh, what a crafty <laughs> joke. She's like telling her dreams. Uh, and that's sadly pretty accurate because I think I have to rewrite <laughs> that book 50 times before it's going to be ready for, for primetime viewing. Oh, but yeah, no, I actually, I have a huge, um, huge love affair with Irish literature and I actually um, was so infatuated with William Butler Yeats, the poet, that I dragged my sister and my father over to a self-conceived William Butler Yeats tour of Ireland, where we oh. <laughs> went to all of the sites in Ireland where he had written poems. And What was I, it about him that fascinated you? Sorry. Oh, he's such a kook. He's, um, he was a a spiritualist, a believer in seance, a, um, he, uh, was a follower of William Blake, another mm -hmm. kooky poet who sat naked in his garden with his wife and, and tried to call the gods down to him. And I fell in love with the poetry at a, it was all through the medium of this incredible teacher at college. Um, I went to school in New York and this, uh, professor was Irish himself and he would read us the poetry in this deep Irish brogue very slowly hmm. and I would just go into this kind of trance like state in the class and so it was a combination of the medium of the teacher and the poetry itself and then William Butler Yeats just being this total kook who um, came up basically with his own religion and was part of the whole late 20th century spiritualist societies of the UK and, and Ireland. Hmm. Ron, do you have any, uh, do you uh, know much about Yeats or do you have a poetry poem, poet that you kind of like, you know, really get into? Um, I don't know much about Yeats. Um, I am... No, I can't. I'm not. I can't say anything right now that's going to make me sound even kind of intelligent. <laughs> have you, have you even, Antonio? Roses are red. <laughs> you could have just said Shakespeare and passed the baton, man. That's no big deal. Yeah, I'm kind of into this guy, Bill Shakespeare. He's from a little town called Trevor Upon Avon. Well, I live there. You, I, I moved you know? there because I'm so into him. <laughs> you know, there's a poet, uh, Antonio Machado, and he's always been my favorite. He's mm. a romantic poet. Uh, wrote during the time of of uh, of Blake and those cats, and gosh, yeah, he wrote a book um, poetry called Times Alone, mm. and it is Writing one of the most. Down. Oh, it's so beautiful. And what was cool is that I read it back like maybe fifteen years ago, and loved it. Really resonated with me. And then I recently was doing a series of paintings, and I was thinking about his poet poems. And I didn't have the book anymore, but I looked up one of his poems and I was starting to read them. And I realized that his poems inspired, started inspiring and worked with the series of paintings that I was working on. Like I now saw his poems through the lens of a painter. And it was a whole new experience with his poetry. It was fucking awesome. Wow, Daniel, that sounds cool.
I want to see some of your paintings now. His paintings are very cool. I'm going to say that for you, Daniel. Well, I'm going to change my that. mind about my poetry that I, a couple of years, every couple of years, I will go, I'll, I'll revisit T.S. Eliot's four quartets. Mm. And Good this, call. this last year, uh, it was on heavy replay on my Spotify playlist. There's a, there's a recording of him reading it. And my brain isn't fast enough to go from like one line to the next where I'm really following everything. Cause I'll get into a line and it, my brain will, will like scatter into a million rabbit holes. And it, it's like, you know, it's like my brain is a, is a symbol and it's just been struck. It's like sizzling and I can't, I can't move on to the next one for a while. So I have to re-listen over and over and over. So this last winter, I got way into it. Um, again, I do that maybe every couple of years or so. And and so if you got more like that, let me know. I'd love huh. to Can I read a quote from Four Quartets? I just looked up. Yeah. It kind of applies to potentially where this conversation might go. Yeah. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Yes such a good one and i think also from the four quartets in our beginning is our end um i mean the four quartets are deeply deeply oriented around mortality and so yeah that's a good segue ron well done also my wife when i when my wife and i were dating she sent me that Uh, and i was living in england at the time and um so it's it's got it's got layers for me I just had a wicked, a wicked little fantasy that you just Googled poems about mortality and then came up with all the rest of the story, how it relates to your life. Like you just... better not out me in this team. <laughs> not one more. <laughs> hey, before well, we get into mortality and everything, which I definitely want to jump into, I have to speak in mortality. There is a death of something that was important to me in my early twenties. And that was ready-made magazine. Oh, and, yeah. and I made uh, several things out of there. What? Yeah, totally. And, and in fact, there was one thing that I made in my early twenties and then remade later in my thirties called, I think it was called the meat slab bed. Oh yeah. The meat cart bed. Yeah. The meat cart bed. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the second time I did, I didn't make it. I had a guy make it in town in Portland where I lived. It cost me a bunch of money to have him make it. And it was oh, so I'm heavy. sorry. It was so heavy. It's but, such it's such a great bed though, just to have, have be able to roll it around on couches. It was so cool. We had a uh, an Airbnb in downtown Portland and and that was like kind of the centerpiece because you could move it around this little place. But I remember um uh having a subscription and then it just stopped, you know, and then I was like going to um borders or Barnes and Noble, all those places, like it was gone and there was no one to add like, where, you know, where is this thing? Yeah. 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 So thank you for that. That was awesome. And it's, I had no idea that you're connected to that. So it was kind of a neat uh, moment for me. Well, that makes my heart sing. It was a, it was a good decade of my life. Um, And, you know, magazines are the second worst business model after restaurants. So it was a really <laughs> dumb thing to do, but, um, I was young and dumb and, you know, had enough pluck to, to, to go for it. Um, but that was a really, it was a really hard thing to do, but such an amazing community of people like you, Ron, who just were looking for a way to like 
you know, make something original and creative in their lives and on a budget and, um, you know, wanted to join a kind of a like-minded community of makers who wanted to control the means of production and like make cool shit. Um, so, and not be, you know, like the only other magazine like that was Martha Stewart and which was totally unrelatable. (laughs) Very different. (laughs) Yes. Very different. (laughs) That's funny. So So, speaking of grief, did you, when that was over, did you go through a period of grief and like, was that, did that feel like something like a hard end in a mortal kind of way? It did. It really did. Uh, because it was our baby. I mean, we raised it up from nothing. My co-founder Grace Hawthorne and I, and, uh, you know, when you pour that much heart and, and sweat and labor into something and you have uh, a group of like hardcore enthusiasts who are following it and it it almost becomes cult-like. Yeah. And so when, when, so we sold the magazine and that was, that was the first moment of grief, like just letting it go of the ownership of it. Um, and you know, I, I remember our staff were really not happy with us. They were like, you know, why are you selling out? Why are you like, and we, we knew we needed to reach a bigger audience and we couldn't grow it any further with what we had. So it was a, it was a economic reality, but, um, that was the first moment of grief. And then when our new owners shut it down a couple of years later, that was just a moment of like, okay, um, you know, we have to truly say goodbye now. And I think, you know, grief and transition are really interesting things. I think, um, when we have to say goodbye to something, we go into this place of like losing our identity in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to, there, you know, in, 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 in many cultures, when you become an adult, when you are in the thick of adolescence and you're expected to assume the reins of adulthood, you, you have to go out into the bush and spend several days alone. Mm-hmm. And it's really this kind of shedding of the old identity. And when you rejoin the tribe, you are given a new name, you're given a whole new identity. And that really resonates with me, the idea that you're shedding this old self and before you step into something new. I don't know if that resonates with you oh, too. That, We've actually talked I- exactly about that. Yeah, that exact thing on here. That idea is actually something that I think is vastly underused and not present in in our society and and could be like it just has to be done on the individual level more. But, you know, to normalize a person's name changing, to normalize maybe a dramatic way, difference of dressing, um, you know, a difference of speech. It's one of the reasons I've always enjoyed travel, because there's this little phenomenon, you know, that happens where if you travel for a long time and then you come back, people give you a little space. They like look at you a little bit from it, like what's what's going on. And then if you fall back in, it's which is very easy to do. Then maybe an opportunity has been lost to integrate a new way of being small ways of being maybe larger ways or fuck it and just be those ways. Some people can just flip a switch and like they are who they are on the, on the inside, on the outside, whether it was the same or not. I really admire that. But that topic of conversation is, is, ah, I think there's so much potential for more 
interesting and authentic human lives to be lived if that were invited into our culture more. Yeah, totally. I mean, do you feel even remotely like the person you were when you were 19? Yeah, that's a good, a good year <laughs> to pick. A that's a good year to pick. <laughs> yeah. You know, because like that is a year I think of, and I'm just like, how am I not dead? Like, how <laughs> did I not get hit by a fucking anything? Right, yeah. right, yeah. All the stupid shit we did, and and just the way that we showed up in life, the way that we presented yeah. ourselves to yeah. other people. Yeah. I was a, I was actually a theater major in the beginning of uh, my university career, and I you know, I just, I was so ego driven and I was, I was so performative and, you know, all that mattered to me was, was getting that kind of positive external affirmation, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, you're a great performer, you know, you're a great actor. And I remember you talking about that with your father too. Like he would give you a lot of that. Wow. That's such, thank you for bringing that up. Cause yes, that was, such an important part of my relationship with my father, like Mm -hmm. me just uh, recounting my accomplishments to him. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, so much of the love I got from him felt like it was condition conditional. It was based on my, my accomplishments in life. And, you know, I know, I do know that he loved me for who I was, but, but who I was, was so wrapped up with what I did Mm -hmm. um, that, and I was really addicted to that. And so when he could no longer really process language and my accomplishments meant nothing to him, wow. I had to recalibrate my relationship with him. And did that, that must have affected wow. your relationship with like so much else in life? Because like, the, that like reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes there's some of those core relationships or core um, uh, points of contact or aspects of our life that if that changes, everything is affected. And I think ideally, you know, we would be so integrated with, you know, our relationships and our emotions and uh, our speech and all that, that, that anything, if it develops, it would affect and change the rest. But did you know that like that would feel that would like would be low hanging fruit like that one probably would really do that. Yeah. Yeah, it did. You're so right about that. It felt like a moment of anticipatory grief that I was losing this source of, of affirmation and validation. And I knew that no one else could fill that in for me. My husband certainly was not going to do that for me. If anything, he knocks me down a peg. I thought that was funny when you said that. I was like, ooh, she just like. So can can you guys clear that up for me a little bit with the relationship with your dad? Um, Was that when he passed away or was that a previous, like another time in your relationship where? Yeah, that was earlier. I mean, he, he suffered with dementia for over a period of five years. It was a long and, and fast and slow and fast and slow decline. And so I heard you talk about that with Sam Harris and that was brutal. Yeah. I mean, it was really brutal for, for everyone um, because you see someone lose the things that matter to them most for him. His brain is what mattered to him most. He was basically a walking brain. He might as well have not existed below the neck. 
Um, you know, he just was not an embodied person. He was not yeah. someone who exercised or like, you know, really enjoyed nature. He was a Brooklyn bred you know, polymath intellectual, like the old school became a professor at 24, Whoa. all that Whoa. mattered to him. Yeah. <laughs> he was a bioengineer. I remember pulling a book of his off the shelf and opening it up and it was all equations. I was like, Oh my God, my father speaks a different language. Mm. Like this is, this is how his brain works. Um, but, but back to the grief part. Yeah, it was, it was what I, the reason I call it anticipatory grief is, um, you know, I was so sad, so much more sad when he was sick and diminished in that way than I was when he actually died. I mean, the death you know, puts a, an end stop on it. It's a capstone and you, you, they don't come back, but he died so many deaths before he actually died. He died the death of losing his identity. He died the death of losing the ability to recognize the people he loved. He died the death of not being able to drive anymore. He died the death of not being able to work anymore. And, mm. and this is something that I think we don't acknowledge about chronic or, 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 degenerative diseases that you're stripped of many of the things that make you who you are. And there comes a point where, you know, your quality of life is just not something that you would really acknowledge as quality of life. And this is why BG and I wrote the book. We want people to feel like um, they can talk about those things much further upstream so that their loved ones understand you know, how they want to design yeah. their lives, how they want to live their lives. And that yeah. at some point, like, you know, it, it just, life doesn't life, life is not really yours anymore. It seems to always be happening on some level too, you know, that we all are always, <clears throat> excuse me, losing something. And even if we grow, um, like I almost wonder, even if we grow in positive ways, we lose some other part of ourselves because those other ways are replacing some way we were you know and I actually wonder if that's something that would keep a lot of people from growing like deeply subconsciously growing is just leaving behind you know what yeah, you know I noticed that when I um even when I like use a use a paint you know or or I, I do this with ideas that I I want to save every little idea like almost a hoarder of ideas or of the last remnants of things. And I've gotten a little bit into when, you know how like in poker, you do a burner card, you know, you'll be playing, you know, about to deal or whatever. And then you just burn a card. I love yeah. that they do that. They just chuck one away and yeah. that card, you know? <laughs> and I think about that. And I have like a half a day where I'll just do like, this is a burner half day. I, and it ends up being just where your mind lets go. Right. But I have a hard, I always need to make a real conscious effort of that. And I, I do think a lot, I'm curious what you think about this, Ron and Shoshana, about like how much I'm hanging on or how much we hang on to ways of being and emotions and all of those things that if we could just let go, which, which okay. changing our identity and these other things we we're talking about sure would help us do. I want to, I want to go back a couple beats there when you're talking about your dad and his, his different language. And I do want to come back to what you just said, Daniel. So don't let me, don't let me get too distracted. Uh, realizing your dad spoke a different language and you didn't speak that language. And there was a separation between the two of you. 
reminded me of uh, the British p- painter Lucien Freud. Mm. Um, I think I'm saying his name a little bit wrong. <clears throat> 20th century painter. I had this. I remember when I lived in England. I remember finding a. You know, I can't remember what magazine it was. It was like one of those like extra big magazines. You know that are like tabloid. Know, yeah. yeah. Of uh, of his daughter Bella cutting his hair when she was probably a teenager. You know, she went on to be um, pretty, you know, pretty prolific uh, fashion designer. And the and it was her cutting his hair at home. And he had this like spaced out look in his eyes. Like he was not there. And what she wrote about him was, I love to cut his hair because that was the closest I could get to him. Mm. And that was like, that was their only time of affection. Mm. And, and I had that framed in my, my live, my live, my bedroom actually. And, and I think some of that is my own dad stuff <laughs> that comes up pretty frequently on here. And some of it uh, is a reminder of how um, thirsty people are for a touchstone of, of love and safety and, and connection. And, and, um, and so hearing you talk about those like multiple deaths or multiple separations when we realize is I think that continues on and, and coming back to your, your burner card thing, Daniel, you know, for, for me personally, I have such attachment to the things that at any minute make me feel strong or make me feel safe or anything like that. And whether it was the religious conditioning I grew up in or even or even just like a tool or a, a way of cooking in the kitchen or something like that. Like I get really attached to things and I just tend to like stay in that deal. I, and I think to your point to, to my detriment, you know, and, 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 and my kind of feels right now, like even the book I'm writing, which is nominally based on my dad is like, maybe one of those things that's like, okay, maybe this needs to be just like cut off and let that thing fly away or burned or whatever I mean, needs to happen. Yeah, that's, that's so challenging, right? It's so, there's so, you have to be this, you have to be very alert, right? And attuned to yourself and to the world around you. We do, I do, to be able to decipher and discern what needs to be let go of and what is serving you positively and maybe maybe serving you positively just for a little longer, or maybe it can just be changed a little bit. Like it's, it's an art, you know, it really is. And one that is a total joy, I think, to get better at and to experience successes around. And it's also looking, you know, when you look up at stars, if you look right at a star, you can't quite see it as well as if you look just to the right or left. There's actually a reason for that. I forgot what it is, but it's, it feels like that, you know, like you have to, I've found that I hmm. that I need to like like look away and pretend that it's not there almost or or look at away look keep an eye out keep my attention on it while not having it like you know a spotlight sitting right in front of me yeah. but you know and then sometimes life helps us out right life there's a fire and you're forced to let go of something and then you realize oh my god I'm like so happy yeah. that happened in some way you know do you have a no, lot of experience no. around that, Shoshana? Or I mean, is this like something you actively use, or are we off on our own tangent? Well, I think uh, no. I, I think when go, you were ahead, talking Ron. about yeah. in, in well, that was a guide to death, I you know when you're talking about the clutter that we accumulate in life, I was thinking about that a lot, uh, and how to have a plan for that when we die, and uh, and I th- I started thinking about that just now, Daniel, when you're talking about this because I've like 
how much shit do I own that I do not want my kids to inherit or my wife or anyone else or have <laughs> right. to deal with. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, we've been in a process of like really culling down. We live in a small apartment in downtown Portland, my wife and two kids and I, and, and it's like, you know, it's like the life raft that just wants to, poof, you know, like go for it. <laughs> and some of this, and every year we go through another culling of stuff and other stuff. And, and it's, and it's so representative of a stage of our life, our mindset. Um, and one of those cullings I'm going through right now is, is my dad was a, um, hobbyist firearm dealer and, and who really loved weapons that were remakes so they weren't they weren't antiques, but they were remakes of of guns from pre eighteen forty. So like Davy wow. Crockett era rifles, and for some reason, and those the, are big rifles. Yeah, they're they're massive, um, like tall. You know, <clears throat> and by and for some reason, the Italians were are, are still to this day like those. Were, if you're going to get one, you're going to get a good one. You're going to find an Italian one. I've had these things chucked in my closet for twenty years since he died in two thousand three. And, and I was like, I think it might be time to get rid of these things. And I pull them out and I start to clean them and look at them. And I, then I start to price these things. I'm like, holy shit, do I want to get rid of these? And then another part <laughs> of my brain is like, holy shit, why am I holding on to these things? Like this is, yeah. this is a glorified paperweight. This is, you know, this is a danger if I hang it on the wall and an earthquake happens, it's going to hurt somebody. <laughs> it's going to go through the floor. Like it is, it, it's, and I wrestle with it because I have this attachment of, it reminds me of some things. It reminds me of a stage of my life. Uh, reminds me of my love for him, my disdain for him, all those kinds of things. And and I think to your point, Daniel, like it's it's time to let that one go for me. Yes, and things carry memory. And uh, as you know, Ron, because you were a reader of Ready Made Magazine, we really believed in the idea of reusing all of the kind of orphaned things of the world and finding new ways for them to be utilitarian or finding new ways to use them, new ways to adopt them um, and care for them because things do carry memory. And I remember going, doing that whole, uh, a very intense weekend with my sister where we went through the belongings in my father's house and we just sat on the floor going through his high school yearbooks that people had signed and not knowing, you know, the people who had had relationships with him and just kind of lingering over the handwriting of these young women who were fond of him. And, mm -hmm. um, the things that we kept were so surprising. I kept this plastic orange tape dispenser that I remember being on his desk. And, um, I kept, you know, his, his old, 1970s era calculator because I knew he used it a lot and his fingers were all over it. But I didn't keep the, you know, the big armoire or the the china or, you know, the stuff that people typically inherit. And I think that's what people miss when uh they think, oh, I'm keeping this stuff for my kids. Because they, you know, you think your kids want to inherit that stuff. They don't want that stuff. They want the one thing that you never thought that they would want, that orange tape dispenser. Um, and there's mystery to that and beauty to that in the things that we choose to keep and the things that we choose to leave behind. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I <clears throat> one of the questions that comes to my mind is why is memory so valuable and are all memories that valuable? And what about the memories that really need to go away? I mean, they're just not, mm. they're not creating anything, you know, fresh and alive, you know, at least for this person or that person or for myself, you know, mm. Mm. because that's, I, I, I think that the, one of the most, one of the things that Ron and I speak about a lot is, is a reality that we're creating. We're creating our reality all the time. And we're making choices about that reality. And maybe each one of us has more of a say in our reality than we might think we do. And so in what ways are we recreating realities that we don't really want or need? And that not that we're suppressing them, like they really aren't serving any anything. Yeah. And, and possessions is one of those ways. I think it's one of the most important ways. How we maintain our body is a way our possessions that we hold on to, the environments we choose, the words we speak, like these are all wands, right? These are all ways that we create this, you know, this reality that we live, our thoughts and beliefs, our values, and uh, changing, letting go, creating, breaking down, learning, you know, acquiring, like all of, the, all of that, keeping that fresh and keeping that valid and or not valid but authentic to ourself you know and rediscovering and shaking the box and letting it all fall and be like okay this part's solid let's keep that you know what i mean what do you yeah. guys think of the idea of of re giving memories new meaning hmm. like if you have a a memory of your dad or your childhood experience or something and and you remember it one way right it, in that memory it's it's not good feels bad you feel shame you feel guilt you feel regret whatever it is have either of you ever tried to revisit a memory to try to attach a new meaning to it like maybe look at it from a different perspective or a what's different... an example of that like i'll give how... you a great example of it um uh, a few years ago morgan and i as my wife were were training for marathon so on sundays we'd go do our long run and it would build up it was like you know 10 then 12 then 14 so one of those one of those like like after 15 milers we were doing we would we would run to a part of portland called st john and that's a trek from where we live and then we would cross this big bridge and to get get through there we'd go through this little neighborhood and it was a cold like october november um pretty cold and wet and it was raining outside and we were running in the middle of the street through some neighborhood and i see a truck up ahead parked and it's turned on and, and the first thing I do is I clock, my dad had that truck when I was eight years old, mm. same truck. And, and as I'm running up to it, the smell of the exhaust hit me and <laughs> the door was open and the same, um, bench seat covers, the same like covers of the seat we're on must've been standard on that car at the time, truck at the time. And I'm running and it all hits me like pretty quick. This, the smell, the sound, the look, it was like, you know, three senses real fast. And then a couple other senses in memory hit me, which was the feel of the, the seat cover and the seal of the seat, the, of the, I'm sorry, the feel of the seat belts, the cold seat belts, the metal seat belts had like GM. I don't know if you guys remember that GM like printed on those seat belt buttons. And I started crying as I'm running down the road and Morgan's like, you know, looking at me like, what's going on? What's happening? And, and, you know, my dad left us when I was 
three, came back was five and then gone for a bunch of years. And he would just, it was just intermittent if he was back at all. And, um, and so I just had a, a clear memory of, of getting picked up and feeling really good about seeing, you know, seeing him. And then, then also the clear memories of him not showing up legitimately not being there when my mom would go take me to wherever and him just not showing up. And, and so uh, at that time, Morgan was kind of helping people as a guide go through some of this stuff. And as we're running, she's like, let's, let's, let's try to give this thing new meaning. And, and instead of um, your dad abandoning you, um, what if we thought of your dad um, not being able to support himself in a way that, that he could fulfill the promise that he was trying to do mm. and, and it gave, it lent some grace to him and lent some, you know, who knows what he was going through. And, and, and I think somewhere around then, and since then, I've really, I really subscribed to the idea that most of us, if not all of us are trying are doing the best we can with what we got. And, and, and that's tough. <laughs> Sometimes it's not good. <laughs> but, I love that story on so many levels, Ron. <laughs> it brings up two things for me. One, uh, my parents had a train wreck of a divorce when I was 13, um, possibly the worst time in life mm -hmm. to have your family fall apart, yeah. which is when you're trying to form your own identity. Um, and at the time, my mom instigated it. She wanted to break up. And so I was a kid. I thought the way I processed that was this is your fault and you've ruined our family. Whoa. And I was so furious with my mom and I, I treated her terribly for years. I, every word that came out of her mouth, I just ripped to shreds and I was critical of her and I was bitter and we would get in these huge fights to the point where she actually kicked me out of the house at, um, at a point she was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And you like, just leave. How old were you when that happened? I was 16. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went and lived with a friend for a couple of weeks. And then my oh. dad got a place uh, and I stayed with him for several months before my mom and I extended the olive branch and, and, and figured it out. But um, now as an adult being in a grown up relationship, I understand the nuance of their relationship in a completely different way. Right. right. Like yeah, I see that totally. my father was actually not a good partner to her at all. Was extremely critical of her. Um, never made, made her feel worthy, um, of love. And she was terribly lonely. She was completely, she felt completely alone in that relationship. And so the choice she made to get out of that relationship was about taking care of herself so that she could take care of her daughters. And as a, you know, as a 13 year old, I didn't understand that at all, but that decision and my mother have, have been redeemed for me as an adult. And I, you know, I have a completely different relationship with her now because I see what she was struggling with and I understand it in a different way. And so I, I think what, what we don't know is that our, our brains only have the capacity to process certain things at different parts of life. Right. Yeah. And we don't have 
great foresight or great hindsight. So we, we, we don't know what we don't know. And, and we process things the way we can at that stage in life. And it may be that later in life, we come to a completely different understanding of that event and that memory. And another thing that came up for me is how our bodies embed these memories, mm. like the idea that, that the smell of the exhaust and the cold feeling of that seatbelt and the GM marking on the belt, all of those things triggered these very physical memories for you, these sensory, sensual yeah. memories for you. And that's what just brought this heave of, of emotion. And I've, I've had that experience as well, where a, a memory, a traumatic memory was just embedded in my body in a way that I had, I was completely shocked by my, my sister um, is epileptic. And the first time I saw her have a grand mal seizure was also as a teenager, we were sitting around the table at brunch and she just got very stiff and toppled over and started, you know, having um, a fit. And we, I thought she was going to die. You know, we were all screaming, yeah. you know, and it was, it was, it's a horrific thing to see. Um, and I was shocked at the time, but you know, I didn't, I didn't cry. I didn't, I didn't process it. And then I was in a, a class in college, a movement class, because I, I was in theater school and you do movement classes and we were paired off. And the exercise was for one person to close their eyes and the other person to take, to have your arm in their, in, in their hands, your arm was extended. They took your arm in their hands and they just rotated your arm in its shoulder joint very slowly. Hmm. And we were doing this as a class and someone at the other end of the class passed out just from this simple movement. And I looked over, saw this person fall. And I just collapsed on the floor weeping. And I realized later that the memory of my sister falling down must have been stored somewhere in that shoulder joint, because that's what this seeing this person fall down triggered for me. And I just was uncontrollably wow. weeping. Um, so just the way that our bodies store memory and trauma are, yeah. are, is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And how, and what made that accessible to you, you know, whereas maybe that wouldn't be accessible to another person, I think is also really curious and interesting. And how do we gain access, you know, to, to like memories that kind of need, would help to come out and be experienced. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, talk therapy is, is great in many ways, but I think, somatic therapy where you actually get into those recesses of your body and where those memories are stored is is incredibly powerful for that reason yeah <clears throat> I, I, I'm, come on ron let's say a word here that was pretty good <laughs> one man. good one we just need one good one <laughs> i was like you're I was doing like, great ron you like, had how? lots of good words <laughs> That, oh, I think man. the word somatic, somatic is a Greek word meaning body. Mm -hmm. And um, I love that word just on its own. Like if we're going to mm -hmm. sit and hang out on words, that's a great one. And I've, I've seen, but I've not experienced a lot of healers coming into the healing space with somatic stuff. And, and Daniel, I've talked about the book in the past, The Body Keeps Score. 
you know, I'm familiar with some of this stuff and, and right now I'm trying a new therapy with, uh, my mental health care professional that's called a brain spotting, which is a similar idea where you're listening to, um, bilateral sounds. So, you know, sounds that are going from one ear to the other and back and forth as you are looking at an object, you know, so if you hold your, your head in a certain space, certain angle, and then look at an object across the field of vision and with, with a trauma, you know, kind of peaked in your body, mm. like where you can feel it. For me, I feel things in my solar plexus, solar plex. I don't know why I always try to pluralize that, but a solar plex, like I, that's where I feel my emotions, good and bad, excitement, sadness, the whole deal. It's just right there. I'm sure that's probably, I'm sure my body's like, dude, there's a lot more you can feel elsewhere if you just like, you know, work through this stuff. But uh, the, the I, I'd only heard about this maybe a week before I started doing it. And that is, somewhere in your field of vision, you can like come into a spot where it actually peaks and allow your body to work through it. And in the few times I've done it so far, uh, it's hard. (laughs) It is really, really, really hard, but I'm glad to have that safe spot versus running down the road. And suddenly like my body is uncontrollable and grieving and all those things. And I'm really curious about that experience for you theater class. When you were done, did it feel like a release or did you have more questions than answers? It did feel like a release. It did. It felt like I had stored that in my shoulders, the trauma of seeing her fall. And we often do store it right in our shoulders and our Mm -hmm. neck. Right. Um, so yeah, it felt like a release and I had no idea it was there. <laughs> yeah. 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 One, one thing, uh, I know you, you said that you listened to our episode on grief and, um, one of the things I learned in my path, uh, was that grief for me is, is, uh, definitely affected. And I don't, I don't know if stored in is, is the best term, but connected to my lungs Hmm. and and i whenever i whenever i cry i have i get a deep breath Mm. you know it's it's like one plus one equals two it happens every time and what's funny is like i don't want to get too into like writing our stories and stuff but part of my little like mythology and personal mythology and story is that i ran from grief a lot and then what happened is i ended up getting two terrible lung infections and i i was like a really good runner i ran in college and ran like you know like a 419 mile so i was like this, this is my life like a really you're fast really, well i was I, I don't run anymore but uh yeah i was for sure and 100 mile weeks right tons of running and then i got these two lung infections this lung infection in my chest and I was breathing with 10% of my lungs and I could barely walk. My dad, who's, he works at a hospital. He said, get to the, get to the hospital, man. You got like tuberculosis or something like go now. And so ended up like kind of like working on my lungs and stuff, but that caused me to stop running, you know? And it really was one in many aspects of my life that led to like confronting in the beginning of a long 10, 15 year process of confronting, not running from grief. And what I learned is 
despite having having had like a lot of scar tissue and like really bad stuff going on in my lungs from this experience over the years grief has uh, feeling grief is just like open them slowly back up you know wow you know there's a there's a um a school of thought that that sees asthma as a as a trauma response and um i don't i'm i don't have an opinion on that personally but i will say i grew up in a in a with being raised by traumatized people <laughs> in a traumatized <laughs> environment and and had asthma at the most traumatic times of my life mm. and when i moved i when i was 19 actually um i volunteered at a hospital in africa in zambia and it was a field hospital so it was like two little tin sheds that were maybe you know 500 square feet a piece and then and then maybe 20 other beds that were not really beds like they were like little things to, the, to lay on and they didn't have a fourth wall so the fourth wall was the wilderness and and then it had an operating room and it had uh, an autoclave to to um sanitize instruments it had an x-ray machine and that's basically it right and there and it was had always been of uh run by volunteers continuously and when i was there i realized i had traveled to a foreign country far from anything without my asthma medicine and i first of all it made me panicky and was like oh my gosh and the panic brought on a feeling of asthma my lungs were tightening up and I had this conversation with myself. I looked up at the sky and I said, I cannot do this. Mm. This is not, I'm not allowed to do this right now. I have to calm myself and be in this moment. And there are some other words I said, I can't quite remember, but I felt everything loosen around my lungs at that time. And I've had very, very, very few asthma attacks since then, it's over 20 years that's happened and i that was the first and i think it was years later that was that that the trauma asthma response you know i heard about it and up until then i always thought it was environmental like just allergies and and you know those kinds of things we don't have to get into that but i i mean i i do think that there is something you know going on with our bodies when when we've we've had certain life experiences and our bodies like either it's either just telling us what's going on or or it is a, a direct response uh of that totally true i wanted it to get back to um maybe some of the end of life stuff a little bit because it's it's real for me right now my dad died when he was 53 i'm in my early 40s mm. that that like you know few blocks for me <laughs> it seems really <laughs> yeah. close really really close and i know that i'm not my dad i know you know he lived a life he was a lifelong smoker he started smoking when he was a teenager he didn't um didn't exercise um um he uh, probably didn't know the word apology it wasn't it wasn't like in his lexicon and his and his ability mm. to use it. and i want to come back to apologize actually i wanted to ask you if you'd apologize to your mom real quick did you when you were when you were going through that process yes yes 
I have apologized to her. I had to apologize to her. I had to apologize to my sister. Mm. I was just like a, a real, I was, I was a piece of work as a teenager. <laughs> I was an asshole to my sister. I was an asshole to my mom. I was just pissed. I was pissed because I, I felt like the biggest shareholder in that marriage and in that mythology of our family. I was just, I had created this, this illusion that I was holding it all together. Um, this is, think, I think, an older think sibling. Do you think you could have been, um, do you think you could have been convinced otherwise? Like back then, if your parents had talked to you, do you think you, do you think that story would have been different? No, I don't know. I yeah. don't know that I had the processing power. That's what I'm saying. Like I, yeah. I, you know, I had never been in a, in a marriage. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't, I didn't yeah. understand like how incredibly difficult marriage is, how incredibly yeah. difficult relationship is, you know, like two people who are very different and trying to find a middle way, a third way together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that doesn't work. And, um, you know, they, they never really should have been together. Um, they needed different things from, from a partner, but yeah, I did apologize. And it took my, my sister a long time to trust me wow. after I was so awful to her as a teenager. Um, I actually had to kind of lock her in my car. I remember we were, we were in college. I don't know if that's and, uh, good for trust issues. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. Like I'm abducting her. Um, we, it was, it was in college and we were both, we both came home and I took a drive with her and I was apologizing to her and saying, look, mm. I, I realized I did so much damage. I was so wrong in the way I treated you. Mm. And she had this really emotional response and she was like I, I i i just i i don't want to talk about this i don't want to talk to you and i i think i like it was one of those power lock cars i think i like locked the car doors and i was like you're not getting out of this the car of until movie. yeah like the child locks are on i we've all seen this movie um uh, you're not like, going you're not, anywhere until i apologize uh, you're not you. you're not going anywhere until you forgive me damn it <laughs> Right. That's a good way to apologize, insisting <laughs> on being forgiven. We'll deal with the repercussions and the apologies that I'll have to make for this, <laughs> for this. apology later. Exactly. But like... exactly. Exactly. It's a series of apologies. Um, yeah, that took a while. And, you know, sometimes it does take a while to undo damage and to for people to trust um, that you have really let them into let them into your heart. So yeah, I had to do a lot of that. And, you know, having a daughter now myself, I have a teenage daughter. How old is she? She's going to be 16 in December. My son just turned 16. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's a really great age. I don't know how you're feeling about it, but. Um, he's, he's, I love talking to him. He's so uh, fun. Yeah. Isn't it the best? Like there, yeah. there are people who can, we can have like debates with and yeah, I, yeah. I'm really savoring this age. Um, despite the fact that she almost killed me driving me like doing a practice drive last night. Oh, I almost killed my dad. Oh, I'm not kidding. I literally think about this probably once a year. Cause it was that intense, Jeez. but 
And I remember. I'm not sure I want to hear this story, Daniel. I'm right. right Yeah, you do. Because you no, no, no. She's going to hear this. Okay. Don't fucking let your. You need to hear this. Come on. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. I was taking a turn within a half mile of my house. And it was a road that probably was a 40 mile an hour, 45 mile an hour um, speed limit. And I was just taking a left turn. I took the left turn and a fucking car was right there. And it full speed pulls off the road and passes us 45 miles an hour on the gravel. Like it's off the road. It, mm. We didn't die because it turned off the road, drove on the road around us. And then my dad, we were in a forerunner. And my dad turned to me and he goes, we almost died. Like, and the way he said that, Cause he, he's a flight medic. Like he's seen, he's helped people live and seen people die thousand times over. And the way he said that, I was like, <laughs> I still think of it. Like, I don't think oh, about him in my so past. Real. Now, but yeah, it was a real deal. So fucking be careful with your 60 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. It's that thing where you're driving with them and you're like pushing your foot into the car, oh, <laughs> into yeah. the car floor <laughs> the whole time. Like break, break. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, have ADHD and, um, when I was reading, I didn't get diagnosed till I was older. This has come back to apologies, coming back to all this stuff. Um, I didn't get diagnosed till I was in my late thirties. And then I started reading the stats that people with ADHD are like 15 times more likely to die from accidents. Like mm. accidents is the, is the all causal leading cause of death for people with ADHD. And, uh, my daughter, 10 years old <clears throat> is definitely on the spectrum and she and I cruise around doing fun stuff together all the time. And she was riding her bike the other day and rode her bike right into the road. She's a smart street, smart kid. Like I, I, I trust her on her own and a car was coming and she's like, she just kind of like shrugged it, you know, and went for this shot, the gap before the car stopped at the stop sign. And I was like, I was like, did you see that car? She's like, it was gonna stop. <laughs> my my like my like guts had dropped out. I was like, I was like, Emma, that is you cannot trust anybody. Do not trip, do not ever trust a car coming to a stop sign. And and I think it was, I hope it was that same kind of thing that happened to you, Daniel, when your dad was like, We almost died. Cause she looked at me, she's like, Oh yeah, okay. Okay. Um, I want to come back to the apologies though, to your to your parents because or your mom in particular. Because in your in uh, the the interview I heard you on Sam Harris, you mentioned an author who talked about four things, um, and and helped me finish these things. It was you know things that help people at the end of their life that f- make them feel like they can pass away with some some dignity. It was I'm sorry, I forgive you. Will you forgive me? And what was the other one? Thank you. Thank you, and thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And I I. I have been trying to live with those principles for a long time because of my own journey. Mm. And, and uh, my wife and I were listening to that podcast episode together and we looked and we heard that and we were like, damn, that need those, those four things need to have more daylight, more, they need to be out there more often. Were you already doing that? Was that already a It sounds like it was because you locked your sister in the car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did that resonate with you? Where you're like, oh yeah, that's what I already knew to be true. 
Yeah, it really did. Uh, and I've heard this over and over again, you know, BJ and I did hundreds of interviews for that book and we heard so many stories of people just really needing that resolution, um, at the, as they were sunsetting, like just needing to, um, come to terms with what they had done, any damage they had done in their lives and just find, um, find the peace of, of having said those things to someone. Sometimes it's really just about saying those things. You can't undo the damage. Uh, you know, there, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes the apology is not accepted, you know, and you have to be prepared for that. I think you have to be prepared for, uh, giving the apology without expectation of it being accepted. Yeah. Uh, there was a beautiful story in the book of a, a vet who was uh, dying in, in the vet hospital. He had cancer. He was, um, I think, a, a Vietnam War vet. And he had come back from the war pretty broken, like many did, and was was not a good father and was an alcoholic and was abusive. And he and his father had not spoken for a decade. He and his son had not spoken for a decade. Um, but when the nurses at the hospital asked, you know, is there anyone you'd want to see? He said, you know, I haven't seen my son in a long time. And so she, one of the nurses got in touch with his son and invited him to come have coffee at the hospital. And the son was very reluctant because, you know, a lot of damage had been done and he hadn't seen his father in 10 years. And just because you're dying doesn't mean that you get instant forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. So the son shows up and has a very uh, cautious, quiet coffee with his father at the bedside. And, you know, the father's asking him questions, you know, what are you doing? Are you married? All of the basic questions. He knows nothing about his son at this point. Right. Wow. Yeah. And his son is extremely cautious, but at the end of the coffee, the nurse says to the son, you know, um, we have some laundry we could really use your help with. Could you help us with a load of your father's laundry? And the son takes the laundry and it gives him a reason to come back hmm. to bring the laundry back. And he comes back and he has another coffee with his father and they little by little get to know one another and start um, talking about what happened and why, you know, the father is talking about why, you know, he feels so much regret and guilt and, um, and, and apologizes to his son. And at the end, um, the, it was the nurse we interviewed about this. And she said at the end, when the father was in his last moments, the son reached out and just embraced his father and held him. And um, it's like you, you see so much in, in these last moments where people are able to say, okay, I understand you were broken and I understand this memory in a new way. 
and I forgive you. And you can go knowing that I forgave, forgave you. Um, it's not always an easy process. That was not an easy process, but, um, and it can take time, but it's so worthwhile because people carry so much burden into the grave. My, my uncle, um, died, uh, a year ago and he, in his last few days, um, said to my aunt, you know, I have some secrets hmm. and she said, I don't want to know. Whoa. I don't want to know. And that was a moment where he was wanting to unburden himself. Mm-hmm. And she felt like, yeah, no, you don't get away that easy where you drop all this on me in your last moments. And then I can't have a conversation with you about it afterwards. I, that lo- allows you to have resolution, but it doesn't allow me to have resolution. And I think it was, I mean, can you imagine just like knowing that there were secrets there and not yeah. knowing what they are? But I think that was a very shrewd choice on her yeah, part. For sure. I'm, I'm, that's, pr- that's a proud boundary moment for sure. Right? I, wonder, yeah. I wonder what the dad's response was. He's like, sorry. And he just blurts it out. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Like, God damn it. Dies. Hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ron, do you have secrets, deathbed secrets? No, because I've told you all, all of them. <laughs> I've unburdened them on you so that no one else has to believe. Here's that bullshit. Awesome. Okay, you dude. two are wow. work husbands, aren't you? We basically are. We've got, cry. we've got like, if I die, this is the shit you have to burn and like get rid of before <laughs> anyone else gets to it. <laughs> burn all the evidence. Oh, Ron, that means a lot. Here's Thanks, the key. Buddy. Yeah, yeah. Daniel was talking about. Um, well, there's two points I want to hit before we jump off. And one was, um, um, you know, before I, you do that, yeah. solar plexus, you had it right. Did solar I? Oh, yeah. thanks man. The plural yeah. is solar plexuses. Solar plexi. That's what I thought. It's solar <laughs> yeah. plexuses. Solar plexuses. I'm not fucking with you. Are you? No, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, is, is something we talked about the, at the beginning of the conversation, which was, um, allowing ourselves to move from transition to transition, allowing ourselves to go from one stage of life to a new stage of life, unburdening ourselves with the old ways of being, unburdening ourselves with like who our expectations, what we wanted, what we desired. Did you find in your experience writing the book or in your experience with with really going deep on the end of life process, anything for yourself that helped you in your own world? to transition from one stage to the next for yourself, like letting mm. things go? That's such a good question. Yeah. I think it, it, it helped me. Um, well, I'll just say that it helped me really focus on what matters hmm. and all the shit that doesn't matter. Yeah, such so, as. well, I think we cling to identities. We cling to things that don't serve us and Come on, give me some more. I want to, okay. I want like a little bit more in there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So greedy um, little pig. I like it. I like it. I'm getting a therapy session out of this. 
Um, Good. It's usually us that gets the therapy session. Yeah, so totally. <laughs> this is our give back episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you good. get two totally unqualified people to like, give you a therapy session. Wow, you'd be for Fuck me. I'm talking to those two guys. <laughs> okay. Let's see. You know, I think uh, I have always clung to. Um, let's get back to this idea of you are what you do. I think I really cling to um, being a producer and a striver in life and someone who like produces great things and gets admiration for things that I produce. And I cling to that. Um, And I think what I realized with going deep on this book, researching it and just being a caretaker to my father is that all of those things that you cling to will become dust. Like they, all of it will go away. All of it will vanish. And all of it is really vanity. And that there is so much more for you. In fact, there is everything in the moment of just being, being in the world, being in relationship, looking in my children's eyes and feeling that love, um, being in nature and like forest bathing and feeling the glory of what we have. We have everything in every moment. And the fact that we cling to these vanities and these identities and, you know, like how many fucking likes we get on our posts and, you know, how many downloads you're going to get of this podcast and, you know, the books we produce and, and, and the material wealth that we produce, it's, it's, it's all just dust. And I, 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 I try to bring that up at work a lot, which people are always like, okay, you could, because I, I literally say to people, you are cosmic dust <laughs> over <laughs> Slack. <laughs> like, just remember. Um, and, you know, I think they're like, what? But, but also, I think it's helpful just to have those moments of remembering that all of this is just, um, this is not what it's about. You know, like us talk, we're having a great conversation. I'm really appreciating it, but like me going on social networks and talking about it and marketing it is, is not what it's about. It's about this conversation and this relationship that we've just established together here and the therapy you've given me over the last year, over the last hour. Um, and any thoughts that this conversation brought for, brought up for you, you know, Shoshana, Well, before uh, you came on, we do five minutes of what we call the draw, because uh, cutting for sign is a metaphor, it's, for, it's a tracking metaphor. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes when you track something, you would shoot it with a bow and arrow. And um, so the draw is sort of us taking aim and getting present, exhaling and being like, what are we after here? What's going on? And Ronald asked me, you know, so what, what do you think about her work and her and what you've taken in and, and what, what has come up in my listening to your discussion with Sam Lamott, um, in reading your bios and gathering some information there and then speaking with you 
is um, that it's surprising. You're you're a surprising person to, because you seem like you're a different person than your accomplishments. And I know you're not, and your work seems to value drawing the authenticity that you speak to right now with the achievement and the success, um, outward success. And you, what my response was to Ronald was, you do that really well. Like you're very present in this conversation, which is, which is valued by us, you know, and, and it also is inspiring and helps us be present to maybe in some ways we might not be, uh, but really clearly and distinctly, you seem like hard to define because you're so seemingly not seeming, but you're so open, honest, clear, and not trying to force that, but also like some people can be open, honest, but then they apply their desire to share with, with the world and their ambition behind the openness and honesty, you know, and then it becomes something a little different. It's not, not valuable, but I really appreciate you just like settled, calm, honest presence. It means a lot. Thanks, Daniel. That means a lot to me. I was walking with a friend yesterday and I said, um, you know, I'm getting so sick of the vulnerability porn all over yeah. the internet. Yeah, yeah seriously. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a lot of kind of vulnerability porn or peacocking or whatever you want to call it, where that becomes, and I feel like I've done it too. It becomes a way to grab eyeballs and grab attention and say, and then I'm going to make an announcement of like, this podcast I did or, or this book I just wrote or this thing I just did. And, you know, I think, I think it, it becomes a little tainted. Um, so I really appreciate that feedback. Thank you. We live in a world where, where, um, we're trying to productize everything. Right. And right now, uh, emotional distress is being productized. It's like being, it's a feature of something that, of, of someone's product, which is their personality. And, and I will definitely put myself in that camp sometimes. I'm definitely well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, this, this is, if there's, think about all the things you could make into a product. That's not a bad thing to make into a yeah, product. I mean, honesty is not a bad it's, product. Yeah, It's just, you can go too far with it. Yeah. But the fact that all of this is becoming like when people give pseudoscience shit, it's like pseudoscience. Okay. Fair. But also that's the masses learning the terminology and now at least being able to use clunky, yeah. potentially true to some extent. It's not bad. You know, I, I really like trying not to demonize these things that we're talking about. They're all playing their part. It's like when yoga came to the States, it's like, that's not bad. You know, that's, that's good. Yeah, we're doing our version of it, but our version of it is certainly better than not doing anything. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's all of those things. And, and I appreciate that not demonizing it. And I don't mean to, to do that. I just, um, well, not that either you are, but just, yeah, no, I just, I, I like, I, I, I so appreciate it when, um, I so appreciate authenticity and I, I feel like we're in a moment of, of, um, you know, really, wanting to find those authentic sources again and, and not, um, 
and not have it feel commoditized. Like you said, Ron, not have it authenticity feel commoditized. So, um, anyway, you guys, this has been a great conversation and I I'm really appreciating it and appreciating you. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah. Really glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, very much so. Thank you, Shoshana. Yeah. Is it and it's Shoshana, not Shoshana? Yeah, Shoshana. I have a Shoshana. friend whose wife was uh named Johanna, and for 10 years he called her Johanna. And then one day she got really mad at him. She goes, You know my name's Johanna. What? <laughs> yeah. She what? Hates Johanna. Was this an alternative like alternative reality? I'm not this kidding, guy was man. <laughs> That was one of the reasons I was kind of like, I had to ask by the end because I was like, I've been traumatized with this guy's wife holding on to that for 10 years. I was like, <laughs> that's Anyways. a pretty passive thing to do, poor fellow. <laughs> oh, totally, man. It was very indicative of why they're not married. But like, are you kidding me? Oh my God, that's amazing. All right, you two. Well, yeah. okay. this was Thanks super fun. Yeah, it's great to talk and um, be well. Okay. You too. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Take care. Okay, see ya. Welcome to the field dressing. If you tell me your real name is Ronald, <laughs> ten, ten, like we're 10 years into our friendship, man. How's the time? What a long con. What a great. <laughs> <laughs> I what love a... the term long con. It's one of my favorite terms. The long con. <laughs> <laughs> I... Coming off of a kind of a deep, uh, vulnerable conversation with somebody, and then goes straight into a long con conversation. It's pretty fun. That's uh, called catharsis, man. That's 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 the nature nature of it. Is know? that it? Is that what catharsis is? That's one of one way. Is yeah, as you go yeah. deep into something, and then something kind of opposite in in form. That's a version of catharsis. It probably helps integrate it all a lot better too. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Also, um, it helps suppress it and forget it and push it away into the dark corners. To so get it deep to down, it. straight down there where it's never going to be. <laughs> Come up there, kid. <laughs> Why only is to, it Only so... to pop out when you're at a stoplight, the person in front of you uh, doesn't go when the light turns green. <laughs> That's when it's all going to uh, overboil. That is a very interesting moment. The amount of emotion, that, that type of emotion that can come out during that, and the brief moments of insanity that 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 we can experience, like it's like I've, it's I've crazy. always wanted a button in a car that says "Hey." It's not like a horn. It's like just a gentle like "Hey" or "Yo, hey. look up." Like just any any kind of like, I'm your neighbor. I'm your friend. I know your your head's in the clouds. That's okay. I mean, I hear you, but like you do. You do know the lexicon and work with the lexicon of. Well, I've had different vehicles that some of them, the little toot is easy to get to. Like you can do it. And then some of them are just like, it's either all or nothing. It's like heart attack or like, you know, nothing. And you know what? I just realized that's a great point. You know how alarms used to be, eh, 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 yeah. eh, and now they're like gently rising songs or sounds of whatever. Oh yeah. On your phone. You mean? Yeah, on like, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, alarms. Yeah. We've got the alarm game down, right? Yeah. And horns need to catch up. There needs to be, you're right, there needs to be a, a smart horn. I wonder if the Teslas have a smart horns. They have to. I feel like we could probably spend another 15 minutes on sound horns and communication, but Why I want to get back. Not? This is the best. <laughs> this is nice. <no>, <laughs>
bookmark this solo one back <laughs> coming ones. back to this one for sure well it's a good point god damn it anytime i get an opportunity to also be a champion for the roll your window down and give a wave if you'd make a mistake in a car like i'm gonna do that like people gotta do that more it's just oh it's yeah the they hey i see you fucked up it's okay i'm gonna fuck up too oh like, yeah or if i fuck up or if, yeah. yeah all of that that's so yeah, good it just it, it just eases tension in the world Big time. And to get to speaking of easing tension, I mean, this is a, a relatively heavy podcast, not too heavy. I was, I teared up a little bit at a certain point H hearing the, hearing the part about the, the son go do his dad's laundry. I thought, mm. shit, that's an intimate thing to do mm. and to take that in. And, and I was, I was tearing up a little bit. Um, but then to have some catharsis afterwards and laugh and kind of integrate. I hope people laugh. I wonder if people laugh with us. You think people actually ever laugh when they're like listening to this? Do they ever at, laugh at, at us at, or with? At or with? Definitely at you. At. Oh, okay. <laughs> now we're talking. Jesus, finally getting comfortable to take some jabs. Been waiting, man. Just uh, like, uh, I, 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 have you ever taken a, a um, an improv class? Yep, I took one. Uh, I was in one last night Whoa. and, and we went around the room asking why everyone was there. Nice. And this one person gave the best answer. I was like, f there should be no other answer than what this person says. She's like, I just went through the hardest fucking year of my life. My husband left me for another woman. My kids hate me. And she just like kept on going on and on and on. And I was like, that's the truth. That's the damn truth. <laughs> that was her answer. That's why she's there. That was, that's why she was there. <laughs> And, and she's like, and my best friend's making me come here because she knows I need to get out and get some like social time. I mean, yeah. taking an improv class is probably you know, in the, in the world where I get to be King, that's, that would be like standard. Oh, dude, Morgan and I took one, uh, several years ago for like five weeks for five or six weeks. Oh, and it was, bad. it wow. was one of those, like, um, people need to know that they can be in a situation and and not have to be on their heels and feel relaxed and nice. have a conversation and be funny and be gentle and normal and all those things at the same time. And that's a great safe place to do it. Cause they give you a lot of tools and communication tools and, and yeah, you know, you should definitely take one of those classes. Why? Well, you said it helps you become natural. I don't know what you're talking about. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> And intelligent and better looking and better hygiene. And, you know, you said it helps with all those things. I'm like, <laughs> what people don't know is I look like pig pen as I'm recording this, like dust and flies flying around me. Uh, you need, you, you need to, uh, not you need to, I would love to see you unkempt sometime. I don't see you. Unkempt? Always, why is kempt not a word if unkempt is a word? What's being kempt? kempt? Probably what I'm looking like right now. I wonder if kempt, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if unkempt is attached to the word kept, but it's the old word. I wonder if the word kept used to be kempt. I'm going to look that up. Okay. Sounds like a great use of time right now. Well, you can keep talking. Let's go. <laughs> Jesus, man. Leave me hanging here. <laughs> we'll wait. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Uh... <laughs> All right. I, <laughs> you guys are dicks. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> yeah. It's the first time I ever called the listener a dick. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> we got you, Daniel. <laughs> oh man. Uh the one <laughs> Hey, we didn't get to talk about I I was hoping for you to find the place to talk about uh uh extended life through AI. I, it I wasn't that that was not yeah. No, it's it, dude, that she was like, I don't know, I wasn't feeling that 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 was the topic of conversation. I feel like yeah. again, like she's just so like she's kind of calm and present and maybe a little sad. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but she seems a little sad and and in a really authentic, real calm way. I don't know if I would call it sadness. I might call it reverence. Yeah. It's something subtler than sadness. Yeah. Like I, I, I've all the information I've heard from her and in getting to speak with her and even, even talking about her, the magazine ready-made there, there was a lot of reverence reverential you know that there was a solemnity uh around her experience uh with things Mm -hmm. that pass away and on the topic of things passing away and that was i live in a world of vagueness where i don't want to think about the future i don't want to think about things that have consequence and i have to really force myself to do that and i think that's the call to action for her book and the call to action for her work that's been public outside of her you know corporate world is is to bring to bring the things that we do not want to confront in our life such as end of life care such as death such as you know things that we just tend to push off yeah. and and to go here's a here's a really easy way to start to deal with it and here's an easy way to think about it that's and, what yeah that's what it seems like it is with her is yeah. it seems like those things are appropriately integrated into her presence she mentioned uh it was either her or bj miller uh talking about that um you know we talk about certain topics in school as kids like you know growing up but we don't talk about death like it's not it's not a topic like hey kids you know one day your parents are gonna die and this is how you're gonna deal with it and instead we we get um they didn't talk about this but i but my experience you know i remember I remember um, every student I went to school with who had a parent die and, and watching those kids get crushed and not and like, and, you know, in some cultures, there's a conversation of like how we grieve together and there's, there's processes for how we grieve together. Well, that conversation is certainly being had more in our culture. I mean, I don't yeah. know if we can say it's not being said anymore. I think there's a lot of schools that, well, but death is, people are waking up to it. Yeah. I, I mean, and yeah, they are. There, there's a whole whole other world we can get to, especially like with the school shooting drills and things like that that are now in place. Oh, and, you know, I mean, it's like oh, shit. That's a, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. You could go to school and die. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for this conversation. Thank you to Shoshana. And uh, I got to actually get going here. I'm running out of time. I've run well, out of me, time. Let me drop this for you real quick. Please do. Unkempt comes from English word kempt, which meant combed. It then turned into kemb, which turned into comb. How do you spell, is that with a C or a K? Well, it, the kemb, yeah, good question. The kempt is with a K, K-E-M-P-T. Yeah. And then the English kemb was also with a K, K-E-M-B, and then that turned to C-O-M-B. So it so just means uncombed. If I'm well kemmed, does that mean I'm well groomed? means you're technically means you're well combed, but it's become well groomed 
but the hallmark of your kemptness is your hair so it to, for you it perfectly applies Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> no, I appreciated that conversation too. That was a little yeah. bit different than I expected. I was kind of in a like, are we gonna die? Are we gonna die? You know. <laughs> but I didn't feel like she wanted to hear that question for some reason. I could be wrong about that, but I was like, this one's for me. <laughs> I'm just gonna chew on this one for a while and bug around with it later. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask what question I wanted to ask that we didn't get to because I because for the same reason is like if you could choose a way to die. Not, not in a way Ooh. of like, a, this is how I, yeah. you know, not to end my own life, but, um, I kept thinking about Terry Pratchett. I don't know if you know much about his end of life, but he died of I dementia know. too. And Neil Gaiman was his kind of best friend and, and hmm. protege, you know, um, hmm. and they had a conversation towards the end of Neil Pratchett's life where Neil Pratchett's like, Hey, by the way, I know I'm going out and I have a, I have an exit plan and I've been able to get um, end of life chemicals that will help me do this on my own terms. Mm. Uh, but the problem with dementia is, <clears throat> is by the time you need it, you can't remember how to do things. And so he had like lost the chemicals yeah, he, in his house. Oh no. Yeah. You Didn't gotta know get a support team around that. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't mind dying the way that the elk dies that you said when they, I didn't know this when you, you're an archer. And so in a hunter, when you shoot an elk and you do it correctly, it, you said it doesn't even really know it's got shot. The arrow went right through it and then it just mm -hmm. lays down and dies if it's done right. And then, I mean, I mean, if it's right through the heart, it's a matter of seconds. The blood pressure is just gone and they have no feeling. There's nothing. It's just that's done. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So that wouldn't be a bad way to die. Plus, then my meat wouldn't be spoiled for whatever's going to eat me. Me eating it. <laughs> oh, are you? If, if I die by you shooting me and shooting me well and then eating me and feeding your family. Done. I'm in. All in. This is somewhere in the future, in some parallel universe, there is us a apocalyptic world. And then what I find out in the afterlife is that the talking about the long con, that you naming a podcast called Cutting for Sign is actually just a long ruse to learn my habits so you can best hunt me. Then hunt you. Long that's You're a good dark. episode <laughs> dark and weird at the end of cutting for signing fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right dude get the fuck out of here okay let's see you later.